This is the AtRuinovations.com podcast with your host, Frank Aragona. We are back after quite an extended hiatus. I have been away, as those of you who follow these things on our website know. I've been in uh, Bolivia for the past uh, four and a half months or so, so I haven't had the time or the resources to be able to produce uh, these podcasts. But I've received a lot of encouraging emails and comments on the website about people who want us to get started again. And so here we are. Um, It is great to be back. I am happy to be podcasting again. I did miss it. And we are, uh, once again, producing some great shows, and today is a good example of that. We are with uh, Luisa Mafi of Terra Lingua, and we will be talking about uh, cultural diversity and linguistic diversity. And so, as usual, without any further ado, Let's get started and uh, listen to the podcast with Luisa Mafi of Terra Lingua. Um, Luisa, let's get started with uh, you giving us a general overview of Terra Lingua. Who are you and what is it that you do? Yes. Um, Terra Lingua is a nonprofit organization, a uh, non-governmental organization uh, more specifically, that was uh, created in 1996 by a group of uh, um, researchers and practitioners from different fields in the uh, social sciences, natural sciences, and field of conservation. Um, we came together um, by chance, I would say, uh, in, in serendipity, um, around the idea that uh, there were several uh, crises uh, of loss, loss of diversity, uh, diversity of life um, on, on, on Earth. Uh, everybody knew at that time about the uh, loss of uh, biodiversity and um, how that was uh, um, uh, worrisome, and uh, on the other hand, uh, m- many fewer people uh, knew about um, the loss of cultural diversity, the loss of uh, um, indigenous and, uh, and, and local communities and their cultural traditions and their uh, languages, uh, and, and that was uh, just as worrisome because um, we, we uh, all agreed the, the diversity of life is diversity in nature and culture, and uh, and, and people were only looking at the, the, the nature side without uh, without considering that the same factors were affecting the, uh, cultural diversity, and uh, and that the loss of uh, uh, cultural diversity w- was also hastening the loss of biodiversity and vice versa. So that was the idea around which uh, Terra Lingua was created. And uh, we started working at many levels. We started developing uh, concepts and ideas and and disseminating uh, those uh, in all possible um, places. And uh, and we started doing uh, research on uh, on what was going on with uh, diversity in nature and culture, what we started calling biocultural diversity. And we did maps uh, to, to show uh, the distribution of biocultural diversity and uh, the, the hotspots of biocultural diversity, if you wish, and uh, show what was affecting uh, biocultural diversity in those places. Uh, we started developing tools for, uh, for actually monitoring uh, biocultural diversity over time to be able to say what is really happening uh, to biocultural diversity uh, around the world uh, over time, and, and we, we have data uh, to, to, to show those trends over, over the last uh, 100 years. 
And then we started working on uh, maintaining and restoring biocultural diversity uh, on the ground uh, with, with field projects, uh, both ours and, and other people's projects that, that we uh, um, support and, and, uh, and, and foster. And, uh, and, and finally, we started getting uh, these ideas into policy as well, because uh, in the end, the proof is in the pudding, what, what governments and international organizations will do to, uh, to support uh, diversity in, in nature and culture. And so we realized that policy was uh, the, the other really fundamental aspect. And we're working a lot on that with international organizations and, uh, and, and uh, um, other uh, sister institutions. Okay, um, how do we go about defining biocultural diversity um, in the research that you guys have done? What parameters or variables have you used to look at that mm -hmm. and measure it? Yeah, well, uh, biodiversity, as, as you know, is defined. <laughs> there are lots of definitions, but um, the most common definition of biodiversity is uh, the, the variety and, and richness uh, of uh, plant and animal species uh, that um, have developed on uh, on Earth, and uh, so it's the global richness uh, of, uh, of uh, and variety of species. And uh, we have defined cultural diversity in, in the same way: the, the uh, uh, riches and variety of of cultures and, and languages that have developed in the course of uh, uh, human history. And, uh, and biocultural diversity really is the integration of both uh, um, the diversity in nature and culture. And, um, and, and the way we understand it, the, the two are so intimately uh, interrelated that really uh, we need a single word to, to talk about it. And uh, uh, because humans have developed within, uh, within the environment, within nature, within ecosystems, and uh, um, for survival, they have needed to. We have needed to to learn how to live within those ecosystems, manage them, use them, and over time learn how to how to do that without undermining that resource base. So there are hundreds, thousands of examples of of. Uh, local communities around the world that that have developed that uh, intimate relationship with uh, with the local environment, which is expressed in the values, uh, knowledge, uh, practices, and languages of uh, of those communities. And uh, and most uh, most of those communities don't think of themselves as separate from nature. They they think of themselves as part of nature, and uh, they care for nature the way. Uh, nature cares for them, and uh, so there, there is an understanding of that connection and uh, of that mutual uh, dependence. Um, that's what we think of as, as biocultural diversity. But unfortunately, uh, as, uh, as globalization and, and so-called modernization and urbanization uh, are occurring more and more uh, worldwide, um, that intimate link between between us and nature is is, is being uh, broken, and uh, many people in urban environments don't even know where their food is coming from. Uh, you know, 
studies have shown that, that children have no idea of what bees do and, and all of the pollination functions that, that, that uh, insects and other, and other creatures uh, have. Um, they don't even know where, milk, where the milk is coming from, and they haven't even seen a cow. So that kind of uh, loss of experience uh, about and with the natural environment is really a, a major cause of, of the breakdown of our own perception of interdependence with the environment, and, uh, and we're seeing the consequences. We are uh, proceeding uh, kind of on, on, a, on a blind course of, uh, of growth and development as if uh, we, we were... Uh, independent of, of, of uh, the transformations that, that we are bringing on to the environment and uh, not liable to, uh, to feel the consequences. And consciousness is beginning to change maybe through climate change and, and, and other phenomena that people are becoming more and more aware about, but uh, there's still a lot more to do for, for us to really reacquire that sense of interdependence and therefore that, uh, understand that we need to uh, conform our activities to to a much more sustainable uh, sustainable way of interacting with the environment. So let's focus on uh, languages as kind of not necessarily the indicator of cultural diversity, but certainly one of mm -hmm. the one of the key factors. Yes. Um, and so much of what uh, you're saying is tied up into languages. Um, words that people use to describe all these different things. Obviously, our language, especially in urban areas, is is changing as people don't know, as you say, where their milk comes from, or you know yeah, how yeah. plants are pollinized, or what bees are for. Um, so let's let's let me ask you, um, how do you characterize what is happening to linguistic diversity at a global level? Mm -hmm. Well, he, my colleague Dave Harmon, uh, who, who has done a, a, uh, um, a lot of research on this, has, uh, has really called, called, called it the other extinction crisis, the parallel crisis of extinction of linguistic diversity. And again, as you say, linguistic diversity is not all of cultural diversity, um, but, but it is uh, almost like the can proverbial canary in, in, in the mine. And uh, where where languages are, are, are beginning to weaken, uh, which means they're not being transmitted to the next generation, and they're not being kept up from one generation to the next. Um, where where in some cases there is even uh, prohibition uh, of the use of uh, of native languages. This was especially true in in, in the colonial past, where in countries like Australia or, or, or North America, both U.S. and Canada, um, there, there was a prohibition for, for indigenous children uh, uh, to use uh, their native languages in schools, and there, there were even uh, physical punishment for doing so. Uh, obviously, it, that, that brought about the, the breakup of, uh, of intergenerational transmission of the languages. And, and with the languages, really, it, it goes a lot of the knowledge that is uh, expressed and transmitted communicated uh, through through language uh, you know I, I remember very vividly an example uh, from my field work uh, in uh, in southern Mexico when I was working with Mayan people in Chiapas and I was gathering information about um, ethnobotany their traditional uh, knowledge of plants specifically medicinal plants 
And uh, I was working with with a Mayan collaborator who was bilingual in uh, Tzeltal, Maya, uh, and Spanish. And uh, we were gathering text in Tzeltal, Maya, and then he was translating it into Spanish. And there were lots of plant names in there in uh, in Tzeltal, Maya. And he was getting very frustrated uh, because he thought he didn't know Spanish well enough uh, because he couldn't find the names for these plants in Spanish. And, uh, you know, I, I looked into it, and, and it became very quickly clear to me that he didn't know the words in Spanish for those plants because there were no words in Spanish for those plants. Those were, were, were native plants that the, uh, uh, the, the Spanish colonizers had not recognized, identified, and given names to. So um, the, the, the process of, of language loss in which many people in the younger generations uh, there in Chiapas as, as well as in many other parts of the world um, with, with the switch to a, uh, a language of uh, a national language or language to, to la- of larger communication uh, really brings about a net loss in knowledge because if you don't have the words for uh, uh, talking about something, uh, y- your, your knowledge about that something, uh, little by little, is going to get eroded. There's no way of communicating about it. So some use practical use that, that is not linked to language may may continue uh, but a lot of knowledge uh, is uh, is getting lost and and it can have really serious consequences again from my field work in Chiapas one of the things that really struck me tremendously was um, as I was working on on medicinal plants and traditional medicine um, I would go to the uh, local uh, field uh, uh, clinic that that was uh, uh, where, where the Mexican doctors came, and uh, and people would line up from very early morning uh, to uh, to wait for the doctor. And I was really interested in, in finding out uh, whether these people had tried traditional remedies before coming to the clinic, and and how much they knew and and used those those uh, traditional Mayan remedies. And uh, there was this young man uh, who was carrying a uh, young daughter, probably three, four years old, uh, in his arms, and she looked very sick, and, and he said that she, she had uh, bloody diarrhea, and he had been walking since uh, before dawn, uh, coming down the, 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 from his village uh, high up in the, uh, in the Sierras <clears throat> to come to the clinic. And, uh, and I asked, hey, did you give her something else before? And, and uh, he said, well, no. And then I started asking him about this particular plant that I knew from the elders uh, was a very effective remedy for that particular illness. And, uh, and I gave, gave him the name in Tzeltal Maya. And he uh, sort of searched his mind and said, oh, yeah, I think I've heard of it. But he couldn't uh, connect the name to the particular plant, to the way the plant looked. Uh, and so obviously th- th- there had been a breakup in, in transmission of uh, of knowledge and uh, through 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 the loss of uh, of uh, uh, traditional Mayan names for for these plants and uh, uh, so you you can see how the even the health consequences uh, of something like this can can be really serious and uh, and, and that that really got me thinking that that was one of the uh, 
uh, one of the uh, aha moments really that that led me uh, over the, the the following two or three years to to uh, think of uh, the kind of of connections that then Terra Lingua uh, has become uh, the the uh, the center of. Now, can you can you give us some statistics in terms of uh, globally what's happening to languages? Um, I mean, we hear these statistics about biodiversity often, but how about with languages? Yeah. I mean, what is the scale of this phenomenon or this problem? Yeah. Well, there are uh, currently um, about 7,000 languages spoken. Uh, this is the best uh, uh, figure that, uh, that we have from uh, catalogs of the world's languages that linguists uh, uh, have put together, particularly um, ethnologue, which is the... Uh, uh, most commonly uh, um, accepted figure, um, and um, of, of these languages, some predictions uh, say that uh, between 50 and 90 percent uh, could be could be lost, meaning that there would be no native speakers of them anymore uh, w- within this century. So um, if those predictions are correct, and, and we keep hearing uh, almost daily about you know, the, the death of the last speaker of this or that language, um, if those predictions are correct, uh, the, the scale of, uh, uh, of the loss of linguistic diversity would be of you know, many orders of magnitude bigger than, than the loss of, uh, of species. And uh, so that, that is really uh, something that is reason for concern, because language is also uh, a part of people's identity. It, it, uh, it really is the language that you learn as a child is, is generally the language that you express yourself uh, the best in, especially when it comes to your, your uh, feelings, your emotions, your, your deepest beliefs. And uh, so it is really a... a um, a major loss for for your sense of identity and well-being, in addition to being a loss uh, in terms of the knowledge that, that is expressed through through uh, through language, the uh, um, even the literature and, and and the arts and all of the uh, all of the beauty of of the products of of human creativity and, and intellect, and um, and it is really linked to to. Uh, the loss of biodiversity in 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 terms of the uh, breakup of the of the relationship between people and the environment. So it's it is something that should be of uh, of great concern to to us all. Yeah, and when we think about it, I mean, there, the loss of biodiversity is obviously alarming, um, but there are so many thousands and hundreds of thousands of species, if not millions, mm-hmm. um, and there's only seven thousand languages. So every time yeah. we we lose just one, I mean, it's like yeah. losing ten thousand species or something like That's that. That's right. The, the order of magnitude is, is something like that, and and uh, uh, that's that's really what what should uh, should. Uh, um, Ring a bell for, for for all of us, and and you know that's one of the things that that, that we try to to uh, work with, and we with some success with governments and international organizations, so that they, they will really begin to when they talk about um, strategies for for conservation, strategies for sustainability, that um, cultural diversity really has to be part of the equation, and uh, and they're beginning to listen now. Now there are several international organizations from UNESCO the United Nations um, 
organization that, that deals with issues of culture, uh, to uh, UNEP, the United Nations Environment Program, uh, to uh, IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Um, they all have, uh, in the last just two or three years, uh, put uh, the, the, uh, the concept of biocultural diversity or the, the links between biodiversity and cultural diversity on, on their agenda and you know, variously in, in their programs of work. So now now the, the next step will be to, uh, uh, to put these concepts in, in um, context, policy context where, where there is uh, the possibility of enforcing the principles and that governments will, will have to follow through. And, of course, there is a lot of reluctance. Uh, national governments still think of you know, di the different languages spoken in, in their countries as a threat because they think that people uh, will be separatists, will want to to, um, uh, to break up, break out, uh, in, uh, or break off, uh, and 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 uh, that that will threaten national unity. But but uh, in most cases, um, all all that people are thinking of is is some level of self determination and. Uh, and uh, ability to to maintain and, and, and support their, their identity, their languages, their cultural traditions. And from this point of view, I think a very important step um, has been uh, last year <coughs> the, uh, the approval uh, of the uh, uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, which really contains all of these principles. Um, it, it, it wasn't the work for 20 years because there was so much opposition from certain governments, and uh, it was still, a, in the end, it was approved by virtually all of the world countries except maybe three or uh, three to five. Um, I don't recall exactly, but I know that uh, among the three were uh, the U.S., uh, Canada, and, and Australia. And, uh, and and that's uh, that's really a uh, you know a great uh, pity that uh, that that happened. Um, but uh, the document is now there. It's not. Um, uh, it's a declaration, so it it doesn't it, it doesn't have the strength of law, but but it it works with moral suasion, and uh, indigenous peoples are already using it as a uh, as a tool to to advance their 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 rights. Okay, yeah. The, what, as you as you were talking, a, a few things came to my mind. Um, one was my uh, the time that I spent in Turkey in 1999, and where I quickly mm -hmm. realized that uh, the Kurdish language uh, they're they're not allowed to use uh, Kurdish. The Kurdish people are not allowed to use oh, yeah. Kurdish in their mm -hmm. schools. They're not allowed to have Kurdish television stations, uh, Kurdish radio, yeah. um, and so uh, one of the reactions of Kurdish society has been, you know, this violent. PKK movement that that the mm -hmm. Turkish government is trying so desperately to stamp out, and I'm not advocating the violence, obviously, but it's it's just not surprising to me that when you when you declare war basically on a language and a culture that that would be yeah. uh, a reaction of at least a certain segment of the, of the population. Um, and then another uh, thing that occurs to me is I was speaking with a USAID official not that long mm. ago, who had spent some time in uh, Indonesia, quite a bit of time. And uh, we were talking about Suharto. And uh, she said, you know, Suharto did all these terrible things, and he killed all these people. Mm. And she said, but one of the good things that he did was, you know, 
now you go to all the different islands and most people speak Indonesian. So, mm. you know, she saw it as a, as a positive thing that, uh, the, the language was sort of being homogenized through this, uh, dictatorial regime through the course of, you know, four decades. Um, but, but I wanted to ask you what, if any, are the common characteristics that, uh, these threatened languages share? Well, they're generally uh, small languages, meaning that they're they're spoken by by a small uh, group of speakers. Um, this this could be uh, anywhere between uh, 500 and and maybe 10,000. Those languages are more vulnerable just because there are fewer speakers around. But uh, in, in some cases, it's even larger languages that, that are threatened uh, if uh, th th there is a very strong national policy to, to uh, enforce uh, one single language and, and, and therefore um, uh, weaken the, the, the other languages that, that are spoken. And for instance, in Africa, this, uh, this happens uh, quite a bit. Uh, you know, generally, the, the, the languages that, that replace uh, native languages are, are world languages such as English, Spanish, uh, Chinese, Russian, Hindi, etc. But in some cases, it, it's uh, it's languages that are they are themselves not among the largest, but they're just the national language spoken in in that particular country. And, and in Africa, that, that that happens a lot. So it's not necessarily a colonial language. It's it's another African language that that uh, that displaces. Um, a, a smaller African language. So um, it, it really, it, it very much depends on a variety of factors. Uh, sometimes uh, just number of speakers is not, is not indicative enough, uh, but there are uh, other uh, political or geographic uh, or economic social factors that, that will, uh, will affect what happens. And, and uh, you know, so in some cases, if, if a small community of speakers is, is not encroached upon, uh, their language uh, continues to be transmitted uh, j just as it did in the past. Uh, it really all depends on, on uh, the specifics. That is the end of our first part of uh, this podcast with Luisa Mafi of Terra Lingua. Please stay tuned for our second part. This is a subject that I find extremely fascinating and also alarming to think that so many of our languages are in danger and as Luisa said, just about every day we're hearing about the last speaker of a certain language passing away. Um, it's it's tragic, and it's hard to imagine what's being lost as these uh, elders and these uh, custodians of these languages pass on. I am uh, interested in doing a show or a series of shows on the origins of agriculture, uh, I've tried to get in touch with some people, haven't had too much luck lately, so if any of uh, the loyal listeners out there uh, have some suggestions, we would much appreciate it. As always, we welcome your comments and, and suggestions. We strongly encourage you to send us your comments and suggestions. It's, uh, once again, good to be back. I'm Frank Aragona. This is the AgroInnovations.com podcast. Please stay tuned. Uh, in about a week's time, we will have part two of the uh, Terralingua podcast. And also, I have a, a couple of podcasts coming up with uh, Grebi Cayabi of uh, Agroinnovaciones Bolivia. And uh, those will be in Spanish, and we'll be talking about uh, beekeeping in Bolivia 
and also uh, Ferro Cement. I did promise a Ferro Cement podcast uh, about six months ago, and I still have yet to deliver, but that is on the way. So uh, those of you who uh, want to practice your Spanish or who uh, are fluent speakers of Spanish, stay tuned for those because those are forthcoming. Thank you so much. This is Frank Aragon in the AgroInnovations.com podcast. Saludos. Saludos.